Good many. Good many. That's, that's not a word. Good many. <laughs> good morning, everybody. Well, there's a couple of false starts there. I think I need more tea. Well, uh, as I was so wonderfully introduced to you, my name is Chris, and I am really, really excited to be here with you today. I've been able to come up and uh, have a service with you once before, but being able to get to preach is is always fun. Uh, I'm, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the campus pastor over in Lake Arock, so across the river and over the Misty Mountains, off into the, uh, the boondocks, and then you'll find us. Uh, I'm married to Sarah, uh, and we have a little three-year-old named Cadman and another on the way, uh, and they all were really hoping to be here with you today, and so they sang greetings, but alas, they couldn't. They uh, had some prep for some stuff, our life group and, and whatnot tonight, so, uh, but they do say hello. Uh, And in the spirit of the sermon series that we're in right now, I also had another message for you from, uh, to the angels of the church at Promontory, uh, uh, from he who is wearing the brown shoes. Uh, I know your works. And I I just wanted to say how much of a blessing it is for for us over at our Link Era campus. And just for me as as a pastor, you get to work with your pastor, Jonathan, good friend and just an awesome guy, how incredibly encouraging and inspiring this campus is, the neat ways that you guys are reaching out into your community and, and blessing it with, with God's grace is just, uh, it's, just it's, it's inspiring for us. We're actually ripping off some of your ideas and, and wanting to try to do some of the same things. So anyway, I just wanted to say from us to you uh, just how happy we are to be part of the same team and just really excited to be able to serve with you. And, and I, I could just pump Jonathan's tires all morning, but you guys already know all about him and how awesome he is, so I can, uh, I can leave that to all of you. But anyway, I'll pump your tires. Thank you for uh, answering God's call to be missional and, and inspiring all of us. So uh, approximately 120 years ago, there was a race that was going on, and there were likely many people around the world that were involved in this race, but for most people, it came down to two teams. There's relatively, in people's eyes, two teams going down, and they're both trying to do something, as far as we know, had never been done up until that point. They'd never been done before. And on one side, there was a guy named Samuel Pierpont Langley. He's an astronomer, a physicist, inventor, uh, mathematician. He was a pioneer in the area, in this field. He was even given a $50,000 grant by the U.S. Defense Department. And so that was a lot of money 120 years ago. He had the best and brightest. He was pulling them in, trying to accomplish this goal. And he used the finest materials. He was so popular, the New York Times was following him around, waiting to see if he was going to accomplish this goal. Everybody was cheering for him. On the other side was a much less known team. So in actuality, there was kind of only one team in people's minds. They were far less known. As as much as we know, they had no college education amongst them. Nobody, Nobody was wanting to fund their project. And their little team of friends and neighbors worked outside of their small town business, a bicycle shop. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to who this team was? Yeah, the Wright brothers. That's, I didn't even have to say they were brothers. That was my second hint. But you guys... So they, the, the goal then was flight. And they won. Why did they win? See, both teams, they were highly motivated to accomplish this goal. They had excellent work ethic. They had bright minds. They had a common goal. And in Langley's case, 
far superior resources, at least on the surface. So what did the Wright brothers have that Langley did not? So we're not going to answer that question specifically this morning, but I wanted to get that idea rolling around in our mind because we're continuing our series in the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. If you have your Bibles here this morning, please turn to chapter three in Revelation, way at the end there. Uh, It's going to be up on the screen as well, uh, or phone, tablet, whatever you use. And one thing you're going to notice, or I hope you've noticed as we've gone through this series, is that every one of these churches had the same pastor, the same head shepherd, and that's Jesus. They all had the same spirit empowering them. They differed in things like finances or influence, but the most important things were were dead even, straight across the board. They all had the same. Why then the difference? Why do some churches receive commendation while other churches receive condemnation or some mix of the two? What sets churches like the one we're going to read about today a truly positive example apart from the others? I think the answer to that question has direct implications for us, doesn't it? How can we as a church be more like the church we're going to read about today, the church of Philadelphia, and less like churches like the church at Ephesus or the one you're going to read about next week, Laodicea? We're going to start to answer that question in a minute when we dive into the text, but first I wanted to give a little context so as we read, you can picture this a little bit. So Philadelphia was located about 40 kilometers southeast of Sardis. And it was, it was an important, it was a fortified city, and it acted as, sort of as a gateway to the east. For the Hellenists, for those, uh, the Greeks, it also acted as a missionary city, but not like the kind of mission that you're probably thinking about when you, when you hear that in a church service. Their mission had been to spread and was the, the mission to spread the language and the culture of the Greeks. So as you, as you read through the New Testament, you'll, you'll read past, or phrases like this before, the, to, to the Greek and the non-Greek. And so for your information, in biblical times, there was more than just two nationalities, right? But this just goes to show how superior the view of Greeks was. It was Greeks and everybody else. So there's a lot of industry in Philadelphia. It made a lot of people very powerful and wealthy. And by all accounts, it was a very, very beautiful city. So let's read Revelation 3. Verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I, will, I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I don't know about you, but when I read things like that, when I read about inspiring things, entities, people, I often start to wonder what is it about them that sets them apart? What makes them special? How do they do what they do? And so this comes back to the question we're asking before. What sets this church apart from the other, church, the other churches? And the, and the short answer is obedience to Jesus. As we read through that, we see that they are obedient to Jesus. The more nuanced answer we can find is patient endurance, or as a way I want to frame it this morning, spiritual maturity. In a sense, they've put their big boy and big girl pants on as it pertains to faith. Now, we're going to walk back through and we're going to see how it bears out. So our passage begins much like the others, addressed to the angel of the church, but the description of Jesus is unique. The words of the Holy One, the true one. So center in on that. The true one who has the key of David. So this is a very Jewish Old Testament imagery. Who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. So here what Jesus is doing is he's using a little passage from Isaiah 22. And it's a story of a guy named Eliakim. Or Eliakim. My Hebrew's not that good. Uh, and he, Eliakim was the prime minister and was given temporary power over the kingdom of Israel, sort of like a viceroy for the king of Israel. And so by pointing to this and using this imagery, what Jesus is doing is pointing to his own superior and eternal authority over a greater kingdom. Essentially, the description tells us that Jesus is the only and true Messiah. Because of that, he's going to be the one who decides who participates in the kingdom of God. In other words, salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And he's, and he's pleased. Verse 8, I know your works. He says, behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So just like the city that they're in, they're known for their witness. They're not denying his name, they're saying his name. But instead of language and culture, of course, it's the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the saving grace of Jesus. That's the hope that they're peddling. And Jesus is saying that they have a green light. He's opened the door for them, not only for salvation for themselves, but to spread the good news. and Because we want to remember, as we go through this series, this church, and, and most of these churches are made up primarily of Gentiles. These are, these are non-Jewish folk, typically. And verse 9 tells us that they're facing significant opposition from the Jewish community in their midst. What's the problem? Well, they're saying, this Jewish community is saying, that Jesus isn't the true Messiah. That they're, they're giving out false hope to people. That they've been misled. They're saying that they are the true church. Remember when Jesus said that he's the true one? The holy one? He, this is in opposition, pushing back against this. And in an ironic twist, Jesus ascribes a verse 
that everyone always thought would be delivered to or given to ethnic Israel, and that's all of the nations would come and bow down before them, before the true church. But now Jesus is saying that this other church, this church of Philadelphia, people are going to come down and bow down before them. Jesus is saying that he holds the keys to the true church and the true church are those who obey him. And he shows it by pointing out that their little power, this could mean a variety of things. It could be little political power, little economic power. It could mean their numbers are small. But whatever it is, on the outside, everybody thought that they had little power. Just like the Wright brothers, everyone thought that they had little power. But for the Church of Philadelphia, this little power seems as though it may have even been their greatest strength. And this is confusing for people, then and now. See, honestly, if you ever want to confuse someone, especially guys, uh, ladies, you guys might be able to resonate with this. The other, uh, if you want to confuse someone, change the packaging. The other day, Sarah went shopping and she stopped in and she was going to get me some hair product. And she went in and I explained to her what, like, what it was. And, she, and, I, and I sent her a picture and she couldn't find the picture, but she found another one that had all of the same writing on it. And so she, she just said, well, it's just a new packaging. She sent me a picture and she said, this is the one, right? And I, and I froze. I was like, I, this, no, it, well, it, it, it says the same stuff on it and it's the same brand, but it looks different. This, this can't possibly be the same thing that I normally use. You're going to have to go and ask to make sure. <laughs> so Sarah, Sarah goes up to the front and her and the girl behind the counter proceeded to have an eye-rolling session, <laughs> lovingly, as they, as they talked about how guys do this all the time. See, I don't know what it is, but I get fixated on what I think something should look like. And in my mind, that's it. There's no change. So if it changes, then it's got to be something else. See, we get used to thinking of things in a certain way. They look a certain way. And so we want to believe it when it changes. That's why we still have churches like Laodicea today. You're going to read about and learn all about them next week with Pastor Jonathan. But they, they claim that they are rich and subsequently powerful. But they're not. See, this teaching that Jesus is alluding to, this, it looks powerful, but it's not, or it doesn't look powerful, but it is. This goes back to his previous ministry while he was on earth and it travels straight through. Jesus's teaching is as steady as it goes. See, everyone thought they knew what powerful looked like, what connected to God looked like. Blessed was good, right? If, if you were connected with the gods and you were doing well, you received positive things. If you didn't, if you were far from God, you received negative things. So things like little power, little numbers, little influence, God must not be on your side. All of a sudden, Jesus is saying that the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He's flipping everything upside down. It's like he's changed the packaging on them on what true power looks like. And Philadelphia is what true power looks like. 
See, they had people who had either bowed to the emperor and worshiping him coming from one side or people that were claiming that Jesus wasn't the Messiah at all on other in this sort of spiritual pincer movement. But yet they're holding firm. It's just confusing. See, recently, I think part of this has to do with and what's helped me be able to work through this is, is uh, the idea of meekness. And I know for a lot of us guys, yeah, no one, no, guys don't like being called meek. But I had someone tell me a, a really interesting definition of the word meek or a way of looking at it, and that's power under control. And that sounds a lot like spiritual maturity to me. And because of that, because they're not denying Jesus. They're showing this inner strength amongst all of this. There's one more thing that we need to mention just about verse 9 to help us uh, see what Jesus is talking about. So he goes through and he says, Behold, I'm going to make those in the synagogue of Satan bow down to you. Uh, See, they say that they're Jews. They say that they're Israel, but they're not. They're lying. They're going to come down bound before your feet and and they will learn that I have loved you. So that could be a little bit confusing because who who does God love, right? Like God so loved who that he sent his son? The world, right? Like so he, God loves, God loves everybody. But so what is it especially about this church that he's wanting to make a point about? God especially loves obedience, God wants people to do what he's asking them to do, just like any parent wants their their child to do what they do. It doesn't mean that they love them less. But he means, he says, he wants his people to be stewards of love and mercy and grace and justice on earth. He wants people to be following after him. This is a theme that runs straight through the Bible. If you were to go back, there's... Many, 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 many verses. I'm going to give us three, though. But 2 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel replies, uh, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? He says, listen up. Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering, the fat of rams, which was a good sacrifice. Proverbs 21, 3, The Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer him sacrifices. Finally, Jesus in Matthew 12, 7, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. See, the reason why ethnic Israel was in the problem or the predicament that they were in is they were ignoring these things. They're ignoring what God was actually calling them to do. And this is why the, the church in Philadelphia was doing so well, that they were, they were embracing God's call to them. They're embracing his expectations of them. They were obeying him. They were actually doing what God wanted them to do. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell, dwell on the earth. See, I think this verse, it, it kind of unlocks our question. You get it? We were talking about keys earlier and then, and then I just, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
who says it's not funnier if you point it out. Uh, but as we read through this, we see Jesus is saying nothing bad about this church. Everything that he's saying is positive. See, maybe they're a small number, maybe they just had little power, but they not only persevered, they kept faithful to the mission and to spreading the gospel. How? How were they able to do that? Considering that, so there's two churches, this one and Smyrna, that received no condemnation, right? So, so two out of seven. The other five are in varying degrees of disobedience to Jesus. So clearly it's not that easy to get this right because there's whole communities going in the wrong direction. What sets this church apart? They were a spiritually mature church. Okay, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? I keep saying that. Before I get to that, I want to read something um, from a book that has impacted me, and I think he's put it really, really succinctly, and it's something that we need to be thinking about in the church, about what I think often we think spiritual maturity means. Uh, It's Outrageous Love, Transforming Power by Terry Wardle. And he writes, Many Christians, including local church leaders, think that being a mature Christian is relegated to believing the right things about Jesus and the faith, behaving like Jesus in daily living, and serving as Jesus did within the church and the world. As such, a great deal of attention is is given to knowing what to believe, how to behave properly, and where to get appropriately involved in Christian service. Sermons are preached, classes are taught, Books are written and ministries are formed to move people toward greater levels of understanding, action, and service. And unfortunately, with this paradigm in place, maturity is measured by a person's movement toward this inappropriately defined end. He goes on to say that what he's talking about, these aren't bad things. They're just missing the mark of what we're trying to look for. He says, Christian maturity is not measured by what a person believes, how he or she behaves, or the level of involvement in ministry. What then is the true measure of Christian maturity? It's to become like Jesus. It's to look like the Lord Jesus. It's really interesting, he goes on through the book and lays out eight different characteristics that Jesus showed during his ministry prior to his death and resurrection. And these uh, include things like identifying as God's son. So for us, that would be identifying as as a child of God and having intimacy with the Father, valuing community, being empowered by the Spirit, ministering in a local context. Those are five of them. He has a few more. But as I, as I say those, I hope they sound familiar. Here at Central Community Church, we value these exact same things. We value these exact same things. But we need to ask the question, do us as individuals who make up Central Community Church, do we value these same things. Do you take our values and do you seek to work on them? Kind of, we don't really talk about these things for fun. 
They're, they're, they're very, very, very important because there's, there's a storm coming, as they say, right? I mean, heck, there, there's storms all around us all the time. Things that are constantly going to be pushing and pulling us that we can get caught up in. Friend or family member gets cancer. Someone loses a baby. You're in school and, and you fail a really big test. Sometimes we just make dumb choices. Sometimes somebody we know and love and are close to dies. Sometimes someone cuts us off in traffic. Whatever it is, these things are coming. It's all coming. Moreover, this text is teaching us something really tough is going to happen that is going to be simultaneously passing judgment on those who don't believe in Jesus while purifying and strengthening those that do. And though it says he'll keep us from that spiritually, we're still going to be, the text leads us to believe, walking through this. Can your faith handle that? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for any of these large things that are coming straight at you? See, okay, let's look at it like this. How do we know, how can we tell if anybody is mature? Just, you know, it's not age. I'm a really good illustration of that. It's not age, right? How do we tell someone's mature typically, right? We, we can push their buttons. It's kind of fun. Or, or we can watch as other people or, or different things push their buttons, watch them walk through something really, really tough. Are, are you, is someone, you don't have to put up your hand, is someone dating somebody right now? Somebody wanting to be dating someone right now? Or you, do you have someone in mind? Are you wondering if they're marriage material? You're going to want to know what they're made of. Walk through something with them. Watch how they treat people. Serve alongside of them. When Sarah and I first met, we were in Poland in uh, 2010, and we, were, we did a bunch of stuff over the summer, but one of the things we did is we served at a, at a kid's camp. And I, most of us, when we think of kid's camp, we think of Stillwood, woohoo, or Quanos, woohoo, right? Camp in Medina or Bob, some of these like super fun, whatever. This is Polish camp in the boondocks of Warsaw with like, to be really polite, behaviorally challenged kids, couldn't speak a word of English, except really, really bad words, like words I didn't even know. It, like, I got an education, right? And so this camp went on for nine days, and these days started at 5 a.m. and ended at 1 a.m., if you were lucky. Sarah would often have to stay up all night. Did I mention all this was in, in Polish? She would have to stay up all night because she could kind of speak Polish. So she was kind of, that's how, this, it, you had to be there. But she would be partly our interpreter. She was our, our rock. She'd been there before a few times. She'd walked through it. She was prepared. She killed it. And now after walking through that, after it was all over, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could walk through Armageddon with this girl 
And not only would she not bat an eye, she'd look really, really good doing it. It was <laughs> me on the other hand. Did I mention she's gracious? She's, she's very, very gracious. I'm still a work in progress. See, Jesus is giving the church at Philly the keys to everything for a reason. They've shown what they can do. They've proven their mettle. They have an open door for salvation and witness. It's like a blank check. This church is killing it. We have this, as you read through the New Testament, if you're not familiar with it, there's this kind of expression, milk and meat. And basically it means like a, a spiritually uh, immature person, a person young in the faith, feeds on milk, right? Like a baby. And then we're supposed to, to grow up and then start to feed on real food, right? Like solid food. They're not feeding on milk anymore. As a community, they're sitting at that big boy, big girl table, right? They're ready to feast. And this is all implied in what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Like, he, oh, we read through this. Oh, he's not pointing out any flaws? Like, did Jesus get shy all of a sudden, do you think? Like, oh, he just doesn't want to read the next letter, right? Like, Jesus isn't getting shy. He just thinks that this church is doing that well. And so it's important for us to see the thing that Jesus is doing, the encouragement or the challenge that he is laying before them is to keep going. They're not done. They, they kept his word on patient endurance up until that point, but it has to continue. They need to persevere. They're not past the finish line. Uh, Christian life of obedience to Jesus isn't the checkbox one and done, right? Sanctified, right? Holy, woohoo, right? Come Lord Jesus and, you know, walking right in. It's all good. It's a constant move in that same direction. It's a lifestyle. And that's why these values for us are so important. They help keep us on track as we seek to guide ourselves and live a life that glorifies Jesus. Is it tough? Well, yeah, right? Like, I mean, tough's relative, I think. Life in Christ is going to look different in Promontory to Chilliwack, to Lake Arok, to Agassiz or to Coptic Christians in the hands of ISIS, right? Like it's going to look different in different uh, definitions of what hard is. But if, if you're listening to this, more than likely the toughest thing that we're going to be going through is the same thing Paul was wrestling with. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, wrestling with in Romans 7 when he's talking about his own sinfulness. That is going to be probably the biggest challenge that a lot of us have to do, our own struggle. See, keeping going is basically impossible with faced, when faced with this kind of opposition and lacking in spiritual maturity. That's why perseverance is such a huge theme in the New Testament. And this includes our, our emotions, our mental states. God created us as, created us as whole people. See, we get caught up in the, in the whole, you know, physical persecution is a, is a bad thing, right? And it is. It, it totally is a bad thing. But being a Christian, in spite of ourselves, is hard. In spite of the different things that are going on around us. See, we look around us and, and we, we think we don't want to miss out on some of the fun that's happening. We don't want to miss out on some of these things. And, and these people, these folks in Philadelphia, they would have had the exact same challenges, but probably ramped up 
quite a bit, right? Because it's not like they're not people. I think sometimes when, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read through the Bible, I can dehumanize people a little bit, right? Just kind of reading all the stories, kind of like robots. Oh, they're missing this part, so they must be struggling with this thing. But there are people just like us, flesh and blood, same struggles, susceptible to all the same junk that we are, yet doing really well. Kind of like you guys. If I want to be honest, you guys are doing really well. Very encouraging. And so what is going to carry us through? What's going to help us keep going? What's going to help us to keep growing? It's, it's Christ-like maturity. It's imitating the Lord Jesus. He, he stayed true to his father every step of the way. He obeyed. He loved. He showered people with grace. He wore justice and mercy like necklaces and bracelets and showed them to everybody he came in contact with. But we're not Jesus, right? Like We need to own that. And as we think about the culture that they were in, they had a lot of different heroes themselves, the Greek culture in particular. Uh, I think you would know that there, it was saturated with Greek and Roman mythology. And one, heroes of, uh, one hero of theirs was Homer. I mean, what was Homer famous for writing? Iliad. Iliad, yeah. See, that's what they said last night too. But what's the other one? Odyssey, there we go. See, I, was, I flip it. I'm, I'm just backwards. Okay, so in the Odyssey, it follows this guy named Odysseus, right? And he's traveling home uh, after engaging in, for bonus points, which war? Yes, that's right, Trojan War. Full points, front row. <laughs> See, this was, evidently was a long and epic mythical journey that lasted like 10 years, full of crazy encounters with different types of creatures, one of them being something called sirens. And as Odysseus was traveling past this island with the sirens, they would call to him, trying to captivate and enslave his mind with their enchanting song. Odysseus, he's the hero of the story, but he's by all accounts, according to Homer, he was a good man. He was even wise enough to know his limitations. And to solve the problem of the sirens, he asked to be tied to the mast of his ship so that he wouldn't succumb to their call, and then take their ship off course forever. And whether Homer meant to or not, there's a lesson that we can pull out of here. Are you distracted? Is something threatening, and this is more important, is something threatening to be pulling you off course of the path that Jesus has laid before you? Do you feel like you have weak resolve? Homer's kind of saying that the solution is to, is to what? To deny freedom. To abdicate responsibility. To tap out. To not take it on. But to pull the decision making out altogether. And I mean, wisdom is knowing limitations. I'm not saying that that's not true. But Jesus has a better way. And that's patient endurance. Or put another way, spiritual maturity. Prepare for the dark times ahead. If you're in dark times now, you can still look to Jesus. You can still grow closer to Jesus. Eat meat, eat meat not milk. Declare Jesus, not deny Jesus. And this is going to enable anyone to walk through anything. God's grace is that 
powerful. You have, even if you're sitting there, well, you don't know what I'm going, you have the strength to walk through anything by God's grace. Anything. See, Philly kept Jesus' word about faithful endurance and things were all around them trying to pull them off course. And so notice what they're doing. It's not some cheat code. It's not some hack. They're just listening to and obeying what Jesus has called them to. Life lived in obedience to him, following him, period. It's, it's really that simple. See, I, I can't stress this enough. And this isn't, oh, friends, going to happen by accident. Just like you don't accidentally get in shape physically, <laughs> you grow in spiritual maturity through intentional action. This is what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. This is discipleship. So what's important? What's at stake? Verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And, and normally when we read these, a lot of time that's like, eh, right? That's ah, something bad, you know, but this is actually really, really good news. Jesus is not going to come in judgment for them, but he's second coming in power to set things right. So what do they need to do until then, Jesus? Hold fast to what you have. Remember? Keep going so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast to what you have. What do they have? Verse 8, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Keep the main thing, the main thing. According to Jesus, there's forces that are going to be constantly coming at us, and this can become wearisome. But the church at Philadelphia, they seem to be sticking together. And we need to, the church needs to as well, because the spiritually sick and hurting, they get picked off by predators if they're not protected by the strong. If you consider yourself strong in the faith, then you're commanded to be looking out for those who aren't. We, you can read all about that in places like Romans 15 or Galatians 6 or Philippians 2. But that's the call that we have. And if you're not well spiritually, this isn't the time to go and try to find yourself. This is the time to hunker down where you're loved. You are loved here. Now the cherry. Verse 12. To the one who conquers, to the one who keeps proclaiming Jesus' name, following after him, witnessing to him, saying strong to his word, I will make him a, power, a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is a seal that cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, God is building something amazing. Amazing, And he wants to use all of you to accomplish that. He's building a temple and he wants the best materials. And the rad thing is, is that his grace has made a way for everyone, every person who is saved by his name and who follows after him to be a pillar in that temple. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father. What a privilege it is to be able to serve you. And uh, man, it's just so encouraging and exciting, scary to look at churches 
like Philadelphia to see what they're able to accomplish. And, and we know that there's no win in comparison. And so, Father, help us not get caught up in that game. But instead, Father, help us keep our eyes on you. Help us keep our eyes on the one who has conquered already. Help us follow in your footsteps with power and strength and humility and meekness and love and mercy and justice. All of these characteristics that make you the perfect one true God. Lord, we want to make an impact in our community here in Promontory. This church already is. And so, Father, we pray that you will continue to bless them and use them for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. And because Jesus was able to set this future of hope for us, it couldn't have been accomplished without first laying a foundation that was laid with his blood. So we're going to move into a time of communion. And I love the scene in Luke 22. Jesus is sitting with his friends. He says, he's reclining at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, this is, this is one of my favorite parts in the whole Bible. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What a guy. And for I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this sacrifice. We're so excited and we can get so excited about the hope that is before us. But then sometimes when we think about all the time from now till then and all the cares of the world, it can become overwhelming. It can become crushing at times. And so that's why we're so thankful that you've given us this command to remember you, to remember your sacrifice remember what's truly important, that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, who holds all things in his hands, loved us enough to send his son to die for us so that we could have relationship with you. And so now as we take the bread and the, and the juice, Lord, we pray that you will accept it in the worshipful offering in which it was meant. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.